Hello and welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Dishakar Najjani. I'm joined today by Divya Charian, Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University and author of the book, Merchants of Virtue, Hindus, Muslims, and Untouchables in 18th Century South Asia, out in 2022 from the University of California Press. How did you come to this project in the first place? It was really out of, you know, thinking about the world around me and then my career as a graduate student in India at Jawaharlal Nehru University, um, where a lot of Dalit-led anti-caste groups were speaking and organizing against caste in its myriad forms, including in academic writing. And when I looked at my curriculum as a specialist in uh, medieval and early modern South Asia, I saw only passing discussion of caste. And this really became an abiding question for me as I progressed through my master's. And when it came time for me to choose my own research project, I decided that, you know, there was this very sort of large question. I mean, I did not have a very specific one, but, you know, what is the history of caste in the centuries immediately preceding um, colonialism? And I also realized what a vast question obviously it is. And so it was in the course of my next graduate degree in India, which is called an MPhil, which is a pre-PhD degree in which you do independent research. That is where, um, you know, I I sort of... uh, thought about it much more, but actually, given how vast it was, I never, I did not have the time to really carry it out in that much shorter degree. But the fire was lit and it was in my PhD that I, I really came to it. But the question came to me because of the ongoing activism in JNU and the kind of, you know, self-critical reflection that that began for me. At the center of your book is a collection of documents mainly decrees and orders that come from the Kingdom of Marwad in Rajasthan. What is it about this place in the 18th century that allowed you to access some of the questions that you are after about the operation of caste in South Asia? Yeah, um, I think that, uh, you know, the the kind of... Um, I think what is unique about uh, Marwar and maybe some other 18th century Rajasthani uh, polities, that is polities around Marwar in this time, um, is that um, the the state made copies of the orders that it was dispatching. Uh, It made copies of those orders in this sort of central repository uh, called the Bahi, which I talk about um, in the book, uh, that was then sort of bound together uh, by year. Sometimes you have two per year. Um, And I think that that uh, really you know, is something rare. For example, the the recent book by the historian Nandini Chatterjee on Mughal law comments on the absence, seemingly so far as we know, of a similar kind of central, um, you know, um, bound or collected um, archive for the Mughal state. Uh, you know, and for her, I think she 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 has this nice discussion, which I've also built upon in my book, which is that in the Ottoman context, you know, there are something called the sigils, uh, which are these centralized uh, records or these running records of orders, you know, uh, which are all in one place, because the fact is that there is, this is a copy, the original has been dispatched, right? Uh, the original is lost to us. Uh, although in Nandini Chatterjee's work, she actually finds a collection of originals um, in the hands of those to whom it was dispatched, happens to be kind of a land uh, revenue collecting household. Um, so she makes a certain methodological claim, which is that rather than sort of imagining or sort of thirsting for this, you know, one central archive for the Mughals, maybe we need to uh, situate our search for those archives 
elsewhere, kind of a decentralized approach to, to where the originals went to various households. Um, so in this case, and it's very curious to me, particularly after reading uh, Nandini's excellent work, uh, which is why is it that this kingdom seems to then kind of be anomalous, but it's not the only one. Having spent time in the archives in which the records are, I know that other contemporary polities in the region do have these running centralized uh, records. And I don't mean to say that it is unique to the region. Perhaps there are others, um, uh, other kingdoms, other 18th century post-Mughal polities in other parts of South Asia that are creating these centralized uh, records. Uh, but to my knowledge, at least nothing is coming to my mind as to if anyone was doing that. So this was this is, in fact, a curious turn. And I honestly don't have an answer as to why. I, I do speculate um, as to why, uh, which is that, and that also goes to kind of the nature or the form of the record itself, which is the Bahi, B-A-H-I, which is actually a documentary form that had been used coming into this period, through this period, and after this period by members of mercantile castes in Western India, um, which are these sort of long running, uh, these long pages, you know, like five feet by, uh, not five feet, that's too long, sorry, three feet by like eight inches. Uh, you know, that's the length of each folio uh, that can then these long, you know, bound thing can actually be folded up and tied up. Uh, this is how mercantile communities in North and Western India have been maintaining their accounts since the centuries before this time. And here that form gets directed into maintaining state records. Uh, which is an interesting turn. And I think that is where some of the arguments of the book tie in with the archive itself, which is that uh, I highlight building on the work of prior scholars that this is a period by which a certain process that began in the 16th century, which is the incorporation of mercantile communities into the very heart of a developing state form into uh, you know, performing bureaucratic functions, but also increasingly ministerial and even military uh, functions which were all kind of folded in together, that these mercantile groups come to really run the administration of this polity as they do in neighboring polities as well. But I'm focused on this one. So I think the, you know, this form, which is of um, a record that is uh, kind of kept in this running ledger, uh, which uh, is unique, uh, you know, the wider South Asian context, is a result of the very processes uh, that are in fact important to my uh, my my project as well. So I would suggest that it is it is the kind of role of mercantile communities in perhaps centralizing. I'm going to say the problematic word rationalizing the administration of this kingdom that they that they lead the way. But the other added thing I would say that perhaps contributes to this is that the Mughal. Uh, kingdom, uh, Mughal empire, which of which this kingdom was a subsidiary um, in, you know, through like from the 16th century, the Mughal kingdom or the empire shrinks to really being just around Delhi in this time period. And it no longer has that kind of hold over these subsidiary polities. And so the rulers of the polity actually have much more time to spend within their domains, whereas earlier they would be posted to all kinds of um, military or administrative duties in different corners of the empire. Now they can really just spend a lot of their time at home, so to speak. So perhaps they have the time and the bandwidth to kind of once again, you know, organize their administration. But here too, that doesn't seem a complete answer because so did so many other subsidiary rulers. How come they all didn't come up with this kind of, you know, centralized form? So I attribute it here to the mix of the legacy of the kind of large polity coming in to the 18th century, combined with the role that merchants are playing. 
what's at the center of your book in many ways is a story about the transformation of a certain kind of ideal caste body from this Rajput ideal oriented around blood and vigor to a very different ideal caste body oriented around the worldview of these merchants. Could you tell us about the role that the state as well as other communities in Marvad had in shaping this ideal or resisting it because you write very compellingly about how this was not by any means an easy transformation. It was marked by conflict. Um, could you could you tell us more about what that conflict looked like? Yeah, and you know, and I think as as you perhaps were also flagging, you know, these struggles are over um, ideals and they are over ideologies that uh, justify regional caste orders, right? Regional hierarchies. Um, so, uh, and I think as you were also perhaps suggesting, what is happening here is that, um, you know, if there were certain ideas um, such as, you know, the warrior being at the pinnacle of the regional caste order, uh, A, because of a certain ideology of what it means to be a warrior and to have that kind of like, uh, you know, um, bequeathing of that quality through blood to the warrior's descendants, combined with command over land, which uh, for centuries, which warrior groups had, right, which also imparts to them um, kind of an ideological basis that extends beyond the pure sort of secular fact of land ownership, you know, so there is this ideological basis to the dominance of the warrior. Then you have the ideological basis to the dominance of the priestly or Brahmin communities, which resides again in this case in like centuries, if not a millennium or more of ideological self-fashioning of the Brahmin as kind of the this sort of receptacle of purity in a ritual sense, uh, but that also emanates uh, from the knowledge uh, the and the ritual power and authority that the Brahmin uh, carries, uh, combined with, in the case of other parts of South Asia, often uh, command over resources, which um, in South India, Peninsula India, for example, Brahmins had control also over large temple estates that were landed estates. So there is a land component to Brahminical uh, power and ranking in other parts of South Asia. Uh, in a region like Marwar, we don't know of such big temple estates that, for example, Brahmins could have been leading. But at the same time, Brahmins do enjoy that kind of ideological uh, claim to being also at the pinnacle of the top order. One could even say there's kind of a tension in terms of who is at the very top between this Brahminical uh, claim and the warrior claim. Now, into this picture come the merchants, and that is what I'm, as, as you are pointing out, tracing in, in this book. Uh, and I argue that in the course of the early modern period, and as particularly visible in the 18th century records that I'm looking at, that they chip away at that ideological basis uh, and add or uh, uh, an, extend, an extended basis to a claim to elite caste rank. And that is a set of um, ascetic austere values that they uh, bring as part of their caste culture uh, that also maps onto the particular religious communities of which they are part, which is uh, Vishnu worshippers or Vaishnavs and Jains. These are the two groups. Um, so, so they bring this kind of new ideological claim, but we know that you can't just suddenly, you know, how do, how do you make that claim stick? Right. And that is where the on the ground politics, the struggles, the contentions that you that were part of your question come into play. Um, and so in terms of resistance, uh, the, I would say there are two major points. Right. One is members of the landed elite and other members who are elite in the sort of by the logic of the old regime, you can say, 
um, who uh, who don't want to accept these kinds of new standards of ascetic and austere behavior, particularly as it really plays out in one uh, two chapters of my book, which is this emphasis on not taking animal lives, on not uh, killing or hurting non-humans. Um, but the hunt, uh, as well as eating meat, were uh, vibrant parts of landed Rajput warrior culture coming into the early modern period. And many of the, the Rajput feudatories or the warrior feudatories of this kingdom refused to fall in line and had the means to actually effectively resist um, because they were they held hereditary claims to certain landed estates. They were also they would contribute militarily to the army. So this was not an easy struggle. And we definitely see examples of warrior warrior past members, uh, you know, who, who simply uh, don't agree. And the state, frankly, is a bit helpless in trying to get them to fall in line. The other, and, and to me more um, interesting or more germane to my argument, is the resistance of groups who do not have power, who do not have economic or military or both kinds of power. Uh, and these are members of um, uh, castes deemed lowly, uh, uh, or they could be Muslims and perhaps not of low caste from our perspective, but they also don't have the numerical or military might to simply just not follow the state's rules. So there we see um, that, you know, they get, um, it is more through everyday acts, I wouldn't even say of maybe it's hard for me to say if it's like resistance that we will resist, but it's just everyday acts of non-compliance, whether just out of inertia, momentum, uh, or uh, or intention uh, that bring them into conflict with uh, the state, uh, and they um, uh, face the brunt of this conflict in the form of fines, in the form of arrests. Um, and in the form of expulsions and banishments. Uh, but here too, there are kind of, um, you know, weapons that they do have, which is precisely, you know, the, you know, you could say the power of the, of the, of the uh, fragment in the sense that they can fall through the crosshairs of the state very easily. Um, and so they can slip back in once banished, they can do things away from the eyes and ears of the state and its informants. Um, and so there are certainly, um, you know, domains, interstices, and um, uh, spaces of, 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 of resistance that we see that are much more diffuse, uh, that are ongoing, and that I suggest are, are the very reason that this archive exists, that I have you know, these masses of orders in which uh, agents of the state, many of whom are merchants themselves, um, are trying to bring people in line with this new ethical and moral vision uh, which is the basis of their claims to, um, you know, being among the, the region's caste elites and of also remaking what it means to be elite. Uh, and that is the ideological refashioning I was talking about at the beginning of my answer to this question, that, that we see this kind of diffuse non-compliance um, across the empire or, or rather the kingdom. So, yes. A central claim of your book is that untouchability in the early modern period is not just one in a set of aspects in the development of caste in South Asia, but rather, quote, unique and constitutive. And for you, this amounts to marking the bounds of the social in the first place, rather than simply demarcating different spaces in a social world. And you also write that the constitution of Hindu and Muslim in the early modern period is inseparable from caste, rather than coming about as a consequence of the blurring of the boundaries between Hindu and Muslim, for instance, as, as some other scholars have emphasized. Could you tell us why these two 
pieces of your argument are, are so important, that caste is unique and constitutive of the social and also that it's inseparable from the making of the Hindu and the Muslim? Yeah, um, so I would say that, you know, here when I think out or think back to, um, you know, histories of the early modern period in South Asia, you know, whether it is the state, whether it is cultural, various cultural, you know, genres, um, caste seems, um, you know, to be in its own box, like there are histories of caste, you know. Uh, and 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 you could say maybe in a way I've written a history of caste, but I think my claim through the history of caste that I'm trying to make, and precisely by highlighting the significance of this category, untouchable, and its operation in everyday um, social life, in in regional social orders, um, in kind of the lived histories of early modern South Asia, is to say that it is not just kind of a marginal experience literally in terms of kind of the social margins um, and historiographically of life in early modern South Asia. It is not just something that should be in its own uh, separate, you know, genre subtype of historical study, that there is um, something constitutive, as, as, as I think your question also framed it as, about uh, kind of situating oneself vis-a-vis -vis the untouchable in everyday life in early modern South Asia, uh, including intellectual life, including uh, local politics, including cultures of the body, um, you know, that that is central. The the in the while being marginal, it is the marginality of the untouchable or the marginalization of the untouchable that in fact is simultaneously uh, the centrality. Uh, of the untouchable as an idea, but also as an embodiment. Um, and that is where, you know, I, I cite in my book, the work of the scholar Aniket Javare, who shows just how important this regime of touch, uh, like touchability and untouchability. And again, not just the abstract idea of some kind of ritual purity, you know, some kind of demographic status, uh, but no, like the actual physical sensory uh, importance of contact. Uh, you know, I use this term social distance, for example, in my book, which I used prior to the pandemic, I, you know, it was very strange to me, but that is also highlighted to me just how much of a contagion there is in caste, you know, we have been social distancing in India for a very long time with our namastes from far away and, uh, you know, other ways in which we avoid a touch. Um, so I think that this both kind of the the kind of um, as an idea, the untouchable and this kind of constant, you know, um, distancing and kind of constant relativizing with the untouchable is important, as is the way in which space gets structured, um, residential space, access to water, um, access, uh, religious ritual spaces, uh, even soundscapes, actually, in the, there is this particular record with which I open, you know, that there is a structuring of space in a very conscious way that everyone who is navigating this life world, by which I mean early modern South Asia, is doing. Uh, that is, that's, that, that I think my, my sort of hope is that through this book, you know, all scholars of early modern South Asia become aware of the absences, the silences, the ways in which uh, uh, either through those, like that is absences and silences or in more legible ways, uh, caste is conditioning the experiences uh, that they are tracing. And so I think for me, this, this was really 
you know, the main significance for why um, I wanted to highlight, you know, this category of untouchable and say that it's not just kind of one end of a degrees and degrees and degrees and degrees of oppression that truly caste does have, but that in addition to being sort of the bottommost rung of this graded order, that there is still uh, kind of a, 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 a function that, that is kind of outsized uh, that, that the figure of the untouchable uh, plays in pre-colonial South Asia. And the second, and this I think maybe is more obvious, maybe I didn't um, uh, think to bring it up initially, is that you know there has been a kind of a simplistic reading of uh, writing about what happens to caste with modernity uh, that I think I hope to um, kind of um, you know counteract that simplistic reading through my engagement with pre-colonial sources to show the significance of uh, of caste in 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 uh, social life, but particularly specifically. Uh, through the kind of it, the significance of this category, untouchable, as I just explained, how that itself is very important um, to the operation of caste in, in India before colonialism. Could you also say more about the implications of this for histories of religion in, in South Asia? Because the point that you also make about untouchability is that it's central to understanding what Hindu and Muslim mean in this period as well. Yeah, that's true. And thank you for uh, for reminding me to address that as well. Um, that, yeah, so I think one major kind of um, set of stakes that historians of pre-colonial, particularly medieval and early modern South Asia have to contend with is this uh, very present day uh, concern with the relationship between Hindus and Muslims in India in, you know, for the, about the millennium before British conquest. Um, and obviously, this has real world stakes because a lot of the violence and persecution of Muslims in India today is justified on the basis of false um, claims that they were that Muslims were persecuting Hindus uh, in you know the centuries before colonialism. Therefore, today uh, Hindus can sort of uh, you know uh, persecute Muslims as as I suppose a kind of uh, historical justice, which does not make sense to me as an argument, but it is also based on a on a false claim. So I think because of the the kind of the, the the importance of this set of stakes, there's been a lot of exploration of the construction, the relationship um, uh, between these two identities of Hindu and Muslim. And of those, one major strand has been, you know, what is the history of Hindu identity before colonialism? where there was a big set of debates, you know, I would say in the early 2000s, in which a number of scholars said that, you know, the idea of a singular Hindu identity is the product of uh, colonialism. And, and I would agree, the idea of Hinduism as an ism is certainly the product of um, uh, colonialism. And there are very significant shifts that um, start to play out in the colonial era, such as, you know, the attempt to identify kind of a holy book where the Gita starts to play a role in terms of being that holy book. And many other pressures, um, you know, uh, that are political as well as ideological that push um, those who emerge as leaders of this emerging Hindu community to kind of imagine it as 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 what we today identify as an ism, uh, but that said, others have also um, explored. Well, okay, maybe maybe there wasn't a singular one, but what do we see as kind of a kind of congealing of some kind of overarching uh, Hindu identity? Where a further sub question within that is 
did that identity have a name or not? And alternatively, does it matter whether it had a name or not, as long as there was some mutual recognition among some people that we have something in common, um, you know, um, in terms of our ritual practices and such like. Um, so I think in terms of the inter intervention of my book, it is really in that set of debates over whether or not there was a pre-colonial Hindu identity. Um, and that is where I make the argument that there was uh, a Hindu-ness. And to me, uh, that was made clear through uses of the word Hindu in the records that I looked at. Um, and, and there I further then argue that this Hindu-ness was understood in caste terms, by which I mean that in you know, the, the, the idea of a Hindu self, um, it was through the creation of distancing that played out very much uh, through concerns with uh, the transmitting of a, of a kind of pollution, a ritual pollution, um, on, or also the idea of kind of an ethical difference, an ethical distinction from those below, which too was linked to ideas of a kind of, um, you know, caste ethic of non-harm and a kind of an elite caste um, identification with cultures of uh, vegetarianism, non-violence, non-harm. Uh, so the, the, there are ways in which the other, uh, whether that is the untouchable other or the Muslim other, and even more significantly of the Muslim as untouchable, which too was visible to me in these archival references, um, that caste is very significant in the um, kind of the realization, the embodiment, the practice of Hindu and Muslim identities in South Asia named as such. And so to me, then it became clear that this, this our thinking about Hindu-ness and Muslim-ness, whether we are looking at shared cultures, whether we are uh, exploring tensions, uh, we need to be mindful that there is a third element in there, which is caste, which, uh, which, which shapes how relations and dynamics between these two communities play out. And so that was yeah one of the claims I was making is that this is a triad, Hindu, Muslim, and untouchable. And as we've been talking, you know, there are these out of both the everyday experiences um, at sites like wells, butcher shops, forests, very specific sites in Marwad, as well as in kind of the, the world of the making of these ideals, you've really been locating these powerful concepts, something as big as other self, the specific concepts in your book, like chastity, austerity, you've been locating them in the, dis the dissemination of and conflicts over these orders and decrees and how you know they, they reflect um, this negotiation over, over space and, and sound and, and many other things, which seems to me on a kind of uh, methodological level about a, a mingling between what people might call, you know, social history, political history, history of ideas, religious history. I wondered if, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about in the process of writing this book, did you think about the relationship between those kinds of subfields or or methods? Um, and, and how do you feel like they appear in the book? Because this is, you know, a compelling history of ideas. It's also a really granular social history. It's a religious history. I mean, could, could you tell us more about how you thought about the relationship between those sometimes really separate conversations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I think for me, it was, um, in fact, it was called almost kind of a stubborn refusal to disentangle uh, these different genres of history and to fit myself into a particular uh, mold. 
And I don't know if that came from a lived experience of a life in South Asia and a recognition of, you know, the dynamics of caste around me that I knew just instinctively going into this uh, research project that I don't want to separate out this or that aspect of the operation of caste by design. I mean, I even remember this being a handicap because, you know, when I went into um, the uh, the archive, I remember, you know, these archives, I mean, this is some of the nuts and bolts of the research, but these archives, it doesn't have, a, you know, um, an index or something that you can look at and be like, I want this record. You have this system where you walked in and you described to the person in charge of the reading room or one of the administrative offices, this is what I want to do. And they would select for you what archives you needed, which was highly frustrating, of course. But I had already done my background work and I knew this is what I, I don't, I didn't have that sense that I didn't see something I should have. But I just remember this question that I said, I want to work on cast. And they looked at me blankly and they said, but which cast? Because they just didn't understand, like, what do you mean by this abstract phenomenon called cast? And how are you going to locate it in the archives, right? We don't know how to help you. This is absurd. You please choose one or two casts that you want to work on, you know? But I refused to back down, you know? And so my approach, and it was kind of like a total history of cast, you know, where I literally went through the, all the records. I didn't want to miss anything. Like I didn't want there to be kind of a missing dynamic that I sort of, you know, didn't. And so I literally read about like every cast in the record. I have like transcribed the thousands of, you know, index cards about every cast. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I copied down the whole archive. I had to make some choices, uh, but I did copy down like a lot. It's not like I focused only on the untouchable, or the what became deemed scheduled cast communities or this or that. But I think that was really helpful because, uh, you know, I would, I, I would not, so, for example, one thing that I did that wasn't obvious to me going in was that I became aware of the significance of um, changes in what we would today call Hinduism. That is with the rise of, you know, devotional, certain devotional movements in the early modern period. And that was actually thanks to a class I took um, in sort of Hindu studies, religious studies uh, taught by Professor Jack Hawley at Columbia. Uh, and, you know, that class really made me uh, aware of, you know, this is a dimension that I shouldn't write out. So even though initially it wasn't obvious, I, I did also pay attention to whatever I was finding about Krishna devotion um, in the archives. At the same time, I had zero clue going in there would be anything interesting or relevant about Jainism and Jains, you know. That was something that just coincidentally became obvious to me as I started to analyze my, 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 my materials. But the point is that going in, I in fact was extremely heterodox. I was extremely open-minded and I gathered everything from taxes, economics, and such like. So I think maybe some of that um, you know, reflects even in the at the analytical or, or writing stage, um, where I, um, you know, I, I refuse to espouse any particular um, hat. I think I paid attention to uh, the political history of early modern South Asia. I was very mindful of my early training, in fact, in economic history and taxes and such like of um, early modern South Asia. Um, in fact, actually, maybe I should say that in the course of revising from dissertation to book, that is the one chapter I dropped after multiple uh, rounds of feedback, which said this is too dull, you need to just get rid of it. So I did. Uh, but it's then the dissertation, if anyone wants to read about taxes. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I would say that I think on, in terms of intellectual history, Maybe that's the one, um, you know, feel and ironically for this podcast in which I felt, you know, I don't 
I wasn't actively thinking about it, but you know, does is this is this an intellectual history project or not? And there I would say that for me, maybe it is because of my political or whatever, you know, commitments. Um, I was much more interested in kind of the hurly-burly world of the of the idea, shall we say, you know, kind of the making of the idea outside of the book, you know, outside of uh, legal codes, you know, the kind of, um, you know, I emphasize here bodies and spaces and, you know, uh, struggles. I think for me, that kind of beating out of the idea and the remaking of the idea through that tussle is really what interested me. Now, whether or not intellectual historians would include me in their club, I, I'm not sure, but you know, I, I'm, I'm genuinely I have no I have no hard feelings. <laughs> but you know, for me, I think it was the the and the way I think my entree into that world again without actually any intention or plan was to pull out concepts. You know, I think I was very attuned to certain keywords that I know from you know again the wider school world of South Asian studies from life in South Asia. So certain keywords really just stood out to me. You know, you could call them. Um, concepts, you could call them um, labels, you know, but, you know, I, I mentioned Hindu, Muslim, I was stunned when I came across literally the word untouchable or a shape um, in the archives used as a legal category. Uh, so those, but also uh, words forecast and how are those used, you know, there's a word called nyat. In fact, that seems to be the dominant way if there is a name for caste um, that, that it is deployed in these uh, legal records. Um, and um, yeah, I think it was through kind of uh, engaging with the with the reconstitution of concepts, like key concepts for everyday politics, social life um, in South Asia, that that I think I um, you know sought to engage with intellectual history. And I'm really glad you brought up um, you know your confrontation with or interaction with the organization of your archive. Um, and, and on this question of categories and terms as they emerged as you were reading, you know, you've written this book uh, primarily in English, but with a number of really helpful transliterations and translations. You were translating from old Marwadi in the first place. So could you tell us about how you rendered or, or translated this, not just kind of terms, which are really important, but also the specificity of the social relations in this place that are so tied to the social relations of South Asia today, but also, as you show, are meaningfully um, distinct and, and, and separated. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for asking me that. That actually was a big um, struggle for me, frankly. I mean, even a struggle of principles, I don't know, because um, I think I have written this book very differently than if I had written for an Indian audience. And I don't know how I feel about that <laughs> in the sense that you know, um, I feel I felt, you know, as you have seen in the book, there, there are a lot of references to persons from different uh, caste backgrounds who are identified as such in the records through the it's almost like a last name, you know, uh, like washerman so and so. And just like I did now, I turned it into washerman, you know, Where, whereas if in India, I use the Hindi word dhobi, uh, that would just be a 1000 times clearer in terms of who is this figure I'm talking about, what is their social location, you know, what is their kind of sensory 
um, world look like, you know, uh, there would be so much of a conjuring of that life world if I could actually use so many of the words that continue in modern South Asian usage, or sometimes that just have color, you know, that, that some of the sentences or such like that have color or turns of phrase that I had to relegate to a footnote or something like that, you know. Um, so, I mean, but unfortunately, if I did that, it would become even less accessible to non-specialist readers or uh, who are not South Asianists uh, or to maybe uh, those who are South Asianists but are not as rooted in kind of this, you know, Hindi speaking North Indian world. And there are also, of course, uh, let me add, those who are not from North India who may not to whom, but who are South Asian, to whom, again, these words would be not as um, evocative. So I think in the interests of, of that, of readability, of um, accessibility, I did translate more than I would have liked to. Um, but I think, um, you know, it was, it was, it was a tricky thing. I don't, I don't have regrets, but yes, there was a conscious decision I had to take. And in terms of the longer like sections or sentences that I translated, I have to say, I gained tremendous respect for translators. It has taken me so much time to translate just one paragraph, you know, or like two sentences and to do it accurately while also sometimes as is the challenge, you want to capture the spirit of something uh, sometimes and the literal meaning of the words doesn't always capture the spirit of um, you know what the person is uh, or you know what that sentence really means um, but you know I think that for me was really a learning experience and uh, you know but you know I it did mean actually that was one of the peer review uh, suggestions I got I think initially I really doubled down on kind of just removing uh, some of that um, primary source language, you know, but one of the reviewers, uh, or was it a book manuscript workshop that I had, uh, gave me this suggestion that, you know, just bring in some of that texture. Uh, in fact, one of the peer reviewers wanted me to have like a whole appendix or something of multiple sources, but that the, the press, in fact, was like, sorry, I was happy to do it. I've done all this work transcribing the damn archive, man. I'm happy to publish a whole archive. Somebody gives me the money to do it. Um, you know, but, uh, but uh, I think the press was like, sorry, this is not our readership. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I hope the person not angry with me. But um, yeah, so so there were different views on how much. And I think that even, even the press's um, sense was the same as mine, right? When I removed a lot of the Hindi Marwadi language words was that, you know, we, there's a point beyond which it becomes inaccessible to certain readers. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was a tricky thing. And I don't know what the right answer is, honestly. No, but I mean, it's really helpful to hear you um, kind of share a little bit of what that process looks like and, you know, what it looks like when you're taking a dissertation and, and turning it into a book. Um, and, you know, on the point of the, you know, bringing up a figure and, and in, in all their specificity, you're really clear when you lay out um, sort of your, your method and your stakes at the very beginning that, you know, you have this incredibly rich collection of documents and you say, you know, you're not interested in in attempting to or pretending to um, write as though you can find the unmediated voice of the people you're writing about, especially people from non-elite caste communities in these records, but you are at the same time, as, as you have said also just now, dedicated to bringing the everyday life worlds that they inhabited into your argument and not as sort of window dressing, but as central to the argument. And I, I wondered if you could say more about that and, and how, as a kind of question of how to write, um, you, you, you approach that problem. 
Yeah, I mean, so there, I think I was thinking out of debates that have been playing out in South Asian studies and that I think people in other fields have also drawn from, which is the rise of subaltern studies, right? Which is this question of representing the voice or the worldview of the subaltern as kind of an autonomous, um, you know, worldview in and of itself, right? Um, so, but as we know from Gayatri Chakravarti's uh, uh, Spivak's intervention, uh, followed up by the work of scholars like Anjali Arundekar, uh, you know, can we ever access that unmediated voice of the subaltern, right? Um, probably not. And uh, I was very aware of that, even though my, the records that I looked at have this, um, you know, really amazing quality for early modern records where you have like, you know, a historical, actual shoemaker or leather worker or bangle maker or like bird hunter, you know, coming into this state and presenting a petition. And of course, we only have the transcribed, truncated version of that voice, you know, if at all in the record. But even that is pretty remarkable for pre-colonial South Asia, right? So there is this excitement that one initially feels like, oh my God, I have reached, you know, in quotes, the people. But then, you know, you we have historical training, historiographical training that has made clear that we don't actually. We may like to imagine that we do, and maybe we're a degree closer, but but we we don't, and we need to be aware of that. And that is where I felt that it would be a kind of maybe another epistemological violence if I claim to be reanimating these voices and claim to to claim this position of now knowing uh, what they said, you know, and erasing, in fact, a kind of um, power dynamic, uh, which had generated the mediated version of their voice in, in, in the archive. So I wanted to make that very clear up front. So really, I just shifted the goalposts uh, for myself right, which was that I can never claim to access uh, that world, the inside thought world, and certainly not claim to be able to, now I'm here, I'm speaking, you know, for the voiceless, I have given them this platform, but rather to, to precisely use that, that act, that unique vantage point that these records have provided me to, to build out a picture um, of kind of those everyday concerns, uh, the, those concerns, and which may also not be everyday, like I'm calling them everyday, but for uh, uh, agents at the time who are coming to the state to be like we are being pushed to the very edge of this temple community or being told to kind of, uh, you know, um, pay our respects to the deity uh, now from like outside the temple. This I'm calling everyday. It was not everyday. This was a very important question for the members of that community who decided to find by tooth and nail by taking this issue to the state, for example, um, or somebody who's losing their house, you know, uh, this is not an everyday question. Uh, so, so to kind of uh, the fact that these records allowed me glimpses into what was it that members of the um, non-elite uh, caste communities, the caste oppressed groups, uh, what was it that, you know, uh, gave them that kind of momentum or pushed them to kind of agitate, uh, use the state um, as kind of a an instrument through which to prevent uh, forms of injustice to them, uh, I think that became a means for me to kind of, as I say, uh, give us a sense of the social experience of being low caste um, or even outcast in early modern South Asia. And that is what I, I made my goal. And at the same time, you know, you, you situate the specificity, what you call, you know, the difference between small details rather than um, the essence of something 
and you situate that for um, for readers inside of a, a much bigger picture. So I'll just read um, a little bit from from the book. You say, quote, the geographies of commercial capital and the ebbs and flows of empire generated long-term streams of historical change flowing at the local, subcontinental, and global scales that converged in the latter half of the 18th century to produce a new elite identity, end quote. So you're situating this in these vast shifts in uh, you know, new world silver coming in, in the Mughal economy changing, in the increase of the need for, for debt, et cetera, that are taking place around Eurasia. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you dealt with operating at both of these scales and all the scales in between and communicating both the kind of global picture as well as, as you say, the immediate concern of somebody being pushed out of their temple community or of their home? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, um, you know, uh, I was mindful of uh, building out that global scale, uh, partially because I felt that we could not have a complete explanation for the kind of um, activity that the mercantile uh, groups are waging here, right, this kind of collective. And there are actually instances in which they gather locally as a collective and they use their monetary resources or their kind of social weight um, in the local state caste order to push through certain changes, right? So how do we, do we just see this as a random local phenomenon? We could, but uh, do we see this as some kind of, I don't know, byproduct of early modernity that is internal to South Asia? We could, but I think there's been enough work done since I would say again, maybe circa 2000, which has um, you know pushed us to to think of sort of these world regions like South Asia um, as as you know very much in connection. And here I'm talking about you know Sanjay Subramaniam's connected history with other parts of South Asia, right? And of course, some of those um, you know uh, the kind of the encouragement towards connected history have focused more on the flow of ideas maybe cultural artifacts, um, ideologies of rule, um, and such like, right? But actually, one of the things uh, Subramaniam points us to is also the intensification of social hierarchies, uh, which is not, I think, an aspect of this sort of early modern connected history that has received much attention from scholars, right? Um, in fact, um, and this is, I'm speaking here broadly of this sort of early modern non-Western turn, there's been a lot of emphasis on sort of, you know, um, cross trans-regional like cross fertilizations and you know hybrid forms and and encounters all of which is important but I think to me I couldn't help but think back to the locality you know and and I felt that in order to understand the locality we therefore need, I, I I don't feel that what is going on at some like surface level or whatever, at like the global scale is just that it's at the surface and there's some deep untouched, you know, base in, in South Asian society. That I think to me was fr frankly incorrect because I could even see in my sources that the kind of what is going on at the supra-regional scale is having effects on the ground. But then to me, I, I pushed it further to say that not only is it something that's related, but that it might be causal, which is that the greater mobility of some, the greater circulation of some, and maybe also of some things like money, um, luxury commodities, uh, all of that, that, the greater mobility of some is actually causing the greater immobility of others because those those, those who have that greater mobility, some of those, not all, uh, here mercantile groups, are amassing a greater amount of social, political, and like financial capital in their hands, which they can challenge or rather they can channel 
towards um, you know elevating further their place in the world, which is in turn contingent on the depressing of others. And uh, so I, I, I wanted, I felt that discussions of this early modern world are incomplete without attention to new forms of immobility um, that, that are being drawn. And to me, really, I, it was not a stretch. Like, it was not some mental gymnastics, you know. You could see, like, who are the groups who are pushing for this change and how are they doing it? Um, it, was, it was the mercantile groups and it was the money and status that they, uh, the power that they had uh, that, that, that seemed to be at the front lines. So that's how I think I connected between scales. And I was also quite inspired by my reading of Sebastian Conrad's uh, book, What is Global History? And I think it's really clear, both you know, having read your book and, um, and learned so much from it and also in hearing you reflect on it now, that this has really exciting implications for how we might teach um, the history of pre-modern South Asia, legal history, the history of the early modern state, global history. I mean, the, the claims you're making here are really powerful in, in how we might teach this both to undergraduates and, and to, to graduate students um, training in these fields. Um, and as you yourself, of course, are, are also an educator, I wonder how, um, how and, and, and whether your, your teaching kind of influenced this book and, and also how you hope, uh, you know, now that it's out in the world, people might teach your work? Yeah, um, this is a good question. I think, um, how did the teaching influence the book? I would actually say the book influenced my teaching, <laughs> which is that, you know, in thinking of like, how do I want to structure my survey lecture on medieval and early modern South Asia? I think I incorporated much more, for example, religion than I think I would have prior to this work, prior to this, uh, it's both a doctoral project and then the revision into the book. I just became mindful of the fact that we can't teach those the history of that period without also paying attention to the dynamic uh, in the world of religion, which is a world is not easy to put in boxes, but you know, the Vaishnav movements, the, uh, you know, Kabir and that kind of bhakti, uh, Sufism, uh, you know, various other strands within Islam and that interface mixed world between all of these things, you know. So I think that became an important element of how I teach my class, as did my attention to sort of economic history and kind of the role of um, India's foreign trade if we can call it foreign trade at that point, but whatever, transnational long distance trade um, in shaping the history of this period. And um, so, and I think thirdly, because of my focus, not on the Mughal empire in the sense of Delhi and, you know, because of my focus on what could be called the region, I, in my teaching of that survey class, I'm also very mindful of, you know, various regions of South Asian history. So that while I offer kind of a meta arc, I also from time to time zoom into particular uh, dynamics and sort of regional developments so that I'm con constantly, you know, decentering um, the center. Uh, but in terms of the vice versa, how did my teaching shape the book? Um, I think just, you know, exposure to undergraduates was really helpful because, you know, when we are all the way from, you know, like, um, graduate students, early graduate students, you know, were on the we, we really look up to the senior scholars. We want to write like the senior scholars. We want to think and be like the senior scholars, you know. Um, and uh, and 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 you know, you're deeply immersed in your PhD years. You know, you're you are uh, PAing. That's true, but you're not in charge of course design in quite the same way. Like what readings to include, what lecture to give, you know. 
Uh, so I think, you know, you, you are reading these sort of dense academic texts all the time. You're talking to fellow graduate students. That's the kind of stuff you do. And then suddenly you're thrown into explaining all this to undergrads and like making sure that they care. You know, this is definitely was kind of a bull for me and like, okay, you know. So I don't know if it really um, sort of uh, shaped the book, but it was very much in my mind as to how how is it that a person who's not deeply invested in the very same set of questions as me might see that this isn't an, an important book or one they should care about? Again, I don't know if I succeeded. My uncle called me after receiving my book. He said, congratulations, Divya, great book, but I'm having trouble reading it. I said, what page are you on? He said, page two. So this was not a good sign. Although I don't think it's at all complicated, but maybe you know, one loses sight of that as an academic. And I think before we close on the question of, you know, again, making sure that people care, um, you you shared in your really wonderful interview with um, Professor Sanjutha Bodar that you really began um, thinking about caste and caste oppression and um, the, the anti-caste movement and, and all of this, specifically in the student movement in Delhi. And you're very clear in the book and you know, in this conversation, we've been talking about um, not only the resonances, but the direct um, links between the story that you're telling in early mo modern Marwad and South Asia today, specifically India today. Um, could you tell us more about what what came out of your research and in, in, in thinking through those politics, and also sort of what you hope readers will take away about understanding the political stakes of caste and caste oppression in India now? Absolutely, yeah. So I would say there are probably um, three things that I think are relevant to the contemporary political context um, that, I, I, again, I did not intend to in, in, in entering the project, but by the time I was done writing and revising it, uh, one would be that, um, you know, in recent responses to making caste a protected category on uh, in American universities and now also possibly in like city at the state level in, in America, um, uh, certain, you know, Hindu majoritarian uh, spokespersons have taken the tack that, well, caste was, you know, fluid. In fact, one of them says it was a type of diversity, <clears throat> whatever that means. Uh, prior to colonialism, and that it is only, and there they once again kind of erroneously uh, misrepresent uh, post-colonial scholarship to say, oh, well, caste was a colonial construct, you know, so they've really run with that. And I think that my, my work is only one, I'm not saying I'm the only one, but I think my work can certainly go a long way in showing that caste could be very oppressive and could be very immobile uh, for um, many people in, 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 you know, in pre-colonial India. Let me emphasize pre-colonial India. So I think that is a very direct application, I hope, uh, of my work, um, as is the um, idea that uh, you know, the articulation of a, of the Hindu, of what it meant to be Hindu in pre-colonial India was not a ritual affiliation that I am a Vaishnava or I am a Jain or I am a this or a that, but rather the word Hindu connoted a kind of elite uh, caste background. Um, and that kind of mutual imbrication of Hindu-ness with elite caste, I think, again, speaks to this history of caste before colonialism uh, that, you know, um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, the the self-identification as Hindu in that time, even though that changed with colonialism, and I highlight that in my in my epilogue, but that 
there is a, a history of interconnection between Hindu identification and an elite caste identity and an investment in maintaining an elite uh, caste identity. This too, I hope, is um, important for these contemporary uh, debates on you know uh, caste in the diaspora and caste in India. Um, thirdly, just this idea of kind of you know there's been this uh, kind of a romance that the Hindu majoritarian groups cling to, which is this idea of you know that Hinduness is somehow uh, by by nature and completely you know historically uh, kind of a, a a worldview a stance that is entirely equated with peace, you know which obviously anybody who is a mature scholar of religions will know that there's no simple, you know, equation or non-equation between religion and um, war or conflict, you know, but I think the, here is an example in which um, Hinduness is mobilized in a campaign uh, of oppression and marginalization, which in which the state is mobilized to physically exclude people from certain spaces. Um, and the third thing, I think, is the uh, association between Hindu elite identity uh, and a vegetarian diet. And conversely, between a excluded identity, that is whether it is Muslim or untouchable, and a non-vegetarian diet. And this kind of ethical idea that a stance of non-violence or non-harm is kind of the ethical basis of that eliteness. This is something we see um, an echo to in contemporary India. This is something we have been seeing, at least I would say since the 80s or 90s in isolated ways in the form of housing communities in parts of Western India. Not a coincidence, my history is from Western India, but in parts of Western India where certain housing societies are deemed, oh, we cannot let you, who coincidentally, of course, is a Muslim, live in this housing society because we're vegetarian. This is a vegetarian housing society. And you as a Muslim, of course, cannot be uh, vegetarian, right? So vegetarian beca vegetarianism becomes a ruse for excluding certain groups who are heredi hereditarily deemed non-vegetarian. And even if they might coincidentally be vegetarian by choice, it's like they carry within them this sort of stigma and even contagion of, of non-violent like bodies, oh, so, oh, sorry, of non-vegetarian bodies. Um, so that is a longer history, but since 2014, since the election of the BJP to power in the national uh, government, there has been a, a further use of state power to deem certain times, certain spaces, public spaces as a vegetarian spaces, which everybody knows is really an attack on Muslims. Um, and this, again, uh, is a very troubling turn. And frankly, as I said, 2014, this is not something that I knew would be happening when I found these references in 2011 and 12. Um, so for me, when I found out, I felt like, wow, what a weird chapter in, in, in India's past where a state is directing its energies towards making people vegetarian. And then it starts happening in 2014 in India. So, you know, that I hope is another uh, sort of um, value to my work, which is to show that there's a long and deep history of the policing of those deemed non-Hindu for being non-vegetarian.